0: Welcome to Role Models for Change, a series of conversations with social entrepreneurs and other innovators confronting some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm James Nardella, a principal at the Skoll Foundation. Today we're talking to Raj Punjabi. He's the founder and CEO of Last Mile Health, an organization that saves lives in some of the world's most remote communities. At age 9, Raj escaped a civil war in his home country of Liberia. He first returned to Liberia in 2005 to support the Ministry of Health's efforts in a few rainforest communities. Now, Last Mile Health partners with government to recruit, train, and manage a national network of community health workers that serves more than one million rural Liberians. This work is at the center of some recent collaborative bets in philanthropy, including Co-Impact and the Audacious Project. Raj is also an associate physician at Harvard. We began our chat talking about what he wanted to be when he grew up.
1: I was most fascinated with He-Man <laughs> and a bunch of Mattel toys. So some kind of uh, superhero
0: is the honest answer. So why are you a doctor?
1: I, I'm i a doctor because I find that the moments that you have with patients um, are some of the most intimate connections to other humans. And there was a moment in college that I almost decided to go into uh, law school so I could be a human rights lawyer. Uh, part of the reason was my senior year of college was the year of the September 11th terrorist attacks. And not only was that horrific, but the impact and the outlash to immigrants um, was also pretty horrific. And the reason I returned back to medicine is I found that, actually through learning about the work of the group Doctors Without Borders, that medicine could also be a pathway to dealing with extremism or dealing with um, human rights.
0: You're a doctor. But you are also an effective speaker and fundraiser, which means you're consistently on the road, you're consistently in rooms of power and privilege, and consistently called on to be a storyteller more than a physician. So how do you balance that with your need to remain proximal to the work?
1: It's a great question. I I would say the, the first three things you said, fundraiser, advocate, you're in rooms, I identify with somewhat the last thing you said, storyteller, I identify with as a core of what a caregiver does. Uh, A physician actually is taught to do. We take histories of patients when they come. Why is it that you have a cough and what are the causes of that cough? And uh, that was actually work that I was fortunate to come across from my mentors, people like Paul Farmer and Arthur Kleinman, who had written a book called The Illness Narratives. And uh, that is a book about patients he had seen over the course of his career to that point and what they taught him about telling the story of the human condition. When I was 24 back in Liberia for the first time as a medical student working in, in a hospital in southeastern Liberia, I would spend time caring for patients with HIV and tuberculosis and then I'd spend my evening hours um, quiet and in the forest so there wasn't a whole lot to do in the evening, uh, reading Arthur's work and then trying to write my own narratives part about the patients I had seen. To, to process, uh, to tell their story, to be able to learn from that. And then ultimately what ended up happening was that one of those stories uh, became useful uh, to help advocate with the Ministry of Health for treatment to be brought, HIV treatment in that case, to be brought to rural areas.
0: What's that story?
1: It's a story about a, a, a woman who I call Josephine. And Josephine was 42 years old, and I had first seen her when she was in a coma, actually. She, she likely had a fungus in her brain or tuberculosis. She turned out has HIV in, and she had gone years undiagnosed with HIV, a treatable condition even back in 2006 when this had happened, when I had first met her. And she was living in a rural remote community that didn't have any access to health workers. And that was part of the reason she didn't have access to treatment. And so I I learned about her story through her cousin, who narrated it to me. And we wrote that up with a couple of others. And in February 2007, the, uh, the government of Liberia was making a decision about where they would send their antiretroviral medicines, the medicines to treat HIV. They were sitting at that time in a warehouse in the capital about to expire within a matter of three to six months. They hadn't distributed them because there was no health workers in rural areas. And that narrative, an anthropologist friend on our advisory board, who is Liberian, knew the Minister of Health, she forwarded that to the minister. The minister called us to come in and speak about uh, what it might take to get HIV medicines out to that area. And in the story, it dispelled some of the myths that were thought. Uh, One of the myths was that well, rural people, because there are no doctors in those regions to prescribe HIV medicines, could come to the capital where there are doctors to get those medicines. And Stories like Josephine were telling us that whether it was because of geographic distance, isolation, they're in too remote an area, it, it cost too much to travel, or because it was a lack of caregivers away from their home, that those were the barriers to care. And stories like Josephine's helped us design the very first program Last Mile Health built with the Library and Ministry of Health. that you know, led to the work we do today.
0: Being a doctor is partly about being a storyteller. I get that from you. That's understanding the story that's brought the patient in and what will make them well. I think of organizational leadership also as being about a narrative, getting everyone on the same page about who you are, where you want to head, what stands in the way, what happens if you get there, what happens if you don't that organizations hang on drama. They hang on a major suspense question. So what, what's the major suspense question that drives your work beyond just meeting the needs of every l- rural librarian?
1: I would say the overarching question is, is it possible for us as the human race to care for each other in a in a just equal way, right? The kind of care that my kids have or your kids have is that possible for every last child or family on Earth? Not just those living close to urban centers, not just those who are are wealthy and or have the economic means, but those who live in you know places like Bo. To me, that's the big question: Can we actually pull that off? Um, or as we Modernize healthcare, are we going to increase inequalities even further? Mm. And at least a billion people have no access to care right now because they live in remote rural areas. I think this question of healthcare for all, dignified healthcare for all, is really what's at stake. And I think it's a world that we seek to take part in creating. But the challenge is that you have nine million mothers, newborns, children, and others dying every year in the remote rural areas. At the same time we know how we could save at least 3 million more lives annually by the stuff medicine is already capable of doing and health workers are capable of delivering.
0: And by saying that healthcare is, we already know that healthcare is capable of delivering, you mean through immunizations and... Right. The... I think
1: teams of frontline and community health workers, so frontline workers being like nurses, midwives, physician assistants, uh, community health workers being the you know people who may have a 6th to 12th grade education, hired, trained, and equipped, trained in a couple hundred hours over the matter of a few weeks. Uh, those those teams, uh, what we defined at Last Mile Health as the rural community health workforce, um, largely made of community health workers, but 10 to 20% of nurses, can deliver a set of 30 services in the setting of a primary health care system. It's already proven that these workers can deliver them. Can a community health worker diagnose, test, treat malaria? Yes, they can, done in many countries. Can a community health worker diagnose and treat sepsis, a lethal, potentially lethal infection in the first 28 days of life that kills um, a good third of newborns? Yes, been done, proven scientifically. Those services need to be delivered by an, a global army of, of, of a, that's built of a community health workforce, of community health workers and nurses that support them.
0: So how are you doing that in Liberia? What are you actually doing?
1: The government of Liberia after the Ebola epidemic, when it saw a skilled supervised worker making a difference to help go with doctors and nurses door-to-door to find the sick, get them into the care, when they saw that impact, coupled with some data that Last Mile Health and the Ministry of Health had worked on, they decided to ensure a new healthcare system for rural communities that prevents the next Ebola and provides everyday healthcare. And so the way they decided to do that with our support was to professionalize rural community health workers. And what that meant was shifting from a policy of keeping them as volunteers to paying them, shifting from a policy where They were being monitored by peers to being supervised by nurse coaches based in clinics and adding a number of systems that would improve the performance of these workers. And so over the last few years, the Liberian government has put together a national community health assistant program.
0: So where are you in that?
1: Last Mile Health is playing a role of helping with about a fifth of those workers directly supporting, hiring, training, equipping them. And with the remaining of the workers, we're helping the government set up the performance management systems, the policy, the plan, the monitoring evaluation system helping understand what this cost, helping mobilize funding. And so what's happened has been extraordinary just in the last year. The progress that we've seen is that community health workers and clinical supervisors combined conducted nearly a million visits in the last year, uh, door-to-door home visits. We've seen uh, 200,000 kids uh, who otherwise would not have gotten treatment for malaria, pneumonia, diarrhea, malnutrition get that life-saving treatment. Um, hundreds of thousands of women who now have access to family planning services they didn't have before. The impact data is also significant. In certain districts, we've seen vaccine coverage improve by fourfold from where it was. In one out of five infectious disease events, which could be potential Ebolas or the next unknown epidemic, one out of five of those cases are being identified by these community health assistants. Those are some exciting um, trends. There's a lot more work to be done.
0: So here at the Skoll Foundation, we look for organizations that are taking direct action on a problem. So in your case, it was pioneering this new approach to professionalizing community health workers, reaching rural and remote communities in Liberia, but then also coupling that with some sort of systems action. So in your case, providing technical assistance to the government of Liberia to formulate a new national community health assistant program, its policy, its monitoring evaluation frameworks. And that combination of taking direct action on a problem and taking systems action on a problem, that's that kind of quintessential social entrepreneurship as we imagine it at Skoll. So what, if, what have you had to learn to move from being an organization and a leader that's focused on directly serving a few counties maybe 100,000 people, to serving a million people, but some of it indirectly through others.
1: Mm. Well, one of the most important changes that needed to happen is to shift from thinking as success as the organization's success towards thinking about success as the success of an entire coalition of actors. It required organizationally moving from thinking about not only working within our organization, but working outside our organization to build the capacity of other institutions like the government of Liberia or other nonprofit actors that wanted to help them execute this program. Since our path to scale was to support government to execute it at scale, it required a change in culture. It meant that we need to stop valuing our success, we need to value the success of other actors to implement the work. And that means different behaviors. So you don't go into the Ministry of Health saying this is the last mile health model. Well, uh, we want all the other partners to scale it. That would be dead on arrival. Uh, and it's not just aesthetic changes like removing your brand. There are actually real changes in the way we work with partners. I and mean, let, let me be clear. I think that the, the, the way any organization in the sector should hold itself accountable is are they delivering something of high quality that has a meaningful impact for the communities they're working with or serving.
0: But I'm sure the progress on that has been painstaking at times. I'm sure that it's been uneven, that it's two steps forward, one step back. Yeah, I mean, I
1: think you have to have an extraordinary amount of patience when you're doing this work. You know, it it took, um, well, it took us five years of work to even get to the place where the government would consider a policy change.
0: Have there been times when you wished, "Wow, I wish we could scrap the whole system and run it ourselves"?
1: Um, when you're working with remote rural communities, private sector doesn't think there's enough market uh, value or enough consumers in one place to to make it profitable. And so I think I think you you if you if if there was a better alternative to doing it this way and to achieve the same end, high quality, impact at scale with these for remote rural areas, saving lives in remote communities, I think we'd be very open looking at that way. Just haven't come up yet.